We turn now to the New Testament book of First Thessalonians, and we'll read uh, chapter 1. Paul, Savanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In connection with our scripture reading, we also turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 5. This article is entitled, The Authority of Scripture. We receive all these books, and these only, as holy and canonical. <clears throat> for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Article 5 is about what often uh, becomes the issue in our Christian testimony. If we bear witness to the truth of the gospel, often we'll be challenged with the question, on what basis do you have such confidence? What's the basis for your faith? And, of course, our answer is the Bible, the Word of God. And the response to that might well be, oh, really? Oh, really? And what makes you so sure that this book is the Word of God? And that's a good question. What makes you willing to stake your life on the truth of what this book says? What gives it such authority over you that you try to uh, submit your life to it, to live according to it, as uh, the supreme authority that governs your values, your beliefs, especially when doing so in this uh, time and place in which we live will uh, put you in the category of a religious extremist, right? That was the, the language that the media pundits used in the past few weeks with respect to the new Speaker of the House and the U.S. Congress, 
uh, Mike Johnson, because he publicly testified that he takes the Bible as his authority by which he governs his life. And people are horrified at that. What, the Bible, that that book, you actually believe it and you actually take it as your guide? Not a guide, not something that helps you, but as your guide? It seems to be scary that people would endeavor to do that. Well, is it just because you feel that it is right for you to follow the Bible? Or just because you've been brought up that way? Or is it because the church says, uh, this is God's word and you have to listen to the church? Well, actually, the answer to those questions is confessed in this article before us concerning the divine authority of Scripture. And uh, we confess that this divine authority of Scripture uh, is beyond doubt. It has an absolute kind of authority. And you know what authority is. Authority is the right and power to command, uh, the right and power to determine, to influence, or judge. And we confess that the scriptures have that authority, that right to command us, to judge us, to determine what is true, to determine our values and our life and priorities. The title of this article from a previous uh, translation is uh, Whence the Holy Scriptures Derive Their Dignity and Authority. In other words, this article answers the question, where and how does the Bible have such authority? And we're going to consider that in our, our outline this evening, beginning with our reflection on uh, what we might call the objective character of this authority. In other words, it's authority uh, that is outside of us. It's not based upon our personal feelings about its authority. It's not based on our opinions or our choices. Yes, we recognize its authority, but that authority is out there, so to speak, whether we recognize it or not. It's not just subjective, but it's objective in that sense. Our confession says of these books that they prove themselves to be the Word of God. The Bible is certainly true according to its own evidence. The authority of the Bible is, to put it in another way, it is self-evident, based upon its own character as the Word of God. It carries with it its own testimony as to its divine character. It's not subject to human judgment or opinion in that sense. We don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges us. So this authority doesn't depend upon our recognition. Now, our uh, our faith, our acceptance, our belief in the authority of Scripture involves our recognition indeed. But it's not our experience of its authority that makes it the Word of God. Now, to be sure... Uh, this article of the Belgic Confession is especially concerned with the question, how do we, how do I become assured that the Bible is the Holy Word of God? And uh, Article 5 answers that question, and that's really our second point concerning the witness of the Holy Spirit within. But that witness does not give the Bible its authority. It only makes it clear to us. It is the Word of God. It has absolute objective authority, whether we recognize it or not. And that's the point of this first consideration. Let God be true, 
and every man a liar. If there was no one in the world that would acknowledge the Scripture to be the Word of God, that doesn't change it. And that Word, indeed, will be the, the standard by which all people are to be judged. The Bible itself bears the stamp of God's majesty. We might put it this way. The voice of God from Mount Sinai is the same voice of God in Scripture. We might say minus the thunder and lightning, minus the shaking of the mountain, but the actual words of God, the revelation of God on Mount Sinai with all its accompanying terrors is the same voice with the same authority by which God speaks to us in his word. The authority of God's word is clearly evident. The Belgian Confession uh, cites one way in which it is evident, and that is in the fulfillment of its prophecies, such that even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. We could also speak of its convicting power, and it's a convicting power that is often manifested even among those who will not bow to its authority or even confess it or change based upon that authority, but they cannot escape the conviction of its truth. There are many such instances of that. And again, uh, the scriptures itself testify to this authority of scripture. In uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, for example, Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse 12, we read, well, let's read, read the previous verse. It says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, for the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And there, there are many examples of people come in, coming into collision, if you will, with the authority of God's word. When Paul uh, preached before Felix in Acts chapter 24, and he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. You see two things going on there, don't you? Felix was convicted. He was afraid. And at the same time, he wants to dismiss and postpone a response to that word that had convicted him. Think of the convicting power of the, of the word as it confronted Belshazzar in, uh, in the book of, of Daniel, where we read in uh, the fifth chapter when uh, Belshazzar saw the fingers of a hand appearing and writing on the wall opposite the land lampstand, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts trembled, troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then Bel, King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. That's before they were given an interpretation of that writing upon the wall. And yes, it was communicated in a miraculous way that caught their attention. But the fact is, this was also an objective revelation of God's authoritative power by making known 
his presence and his judgments that produce the kind of fear. This really, brothers and sisters, is the explanation also of what we're told in the Gospel of John in the third chapter concerning people's response to the light of the truth. The light of the truth made known, especially by the living word of God, by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, we read, This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Jesus, as the living word of God, Jesus, who spoke the words of God, provoked this reaction. People wanted to get away from the convicting truth of the word that he spoke, because that word carried with it a kind of authority that was irresistible to them in terms of their consciences. Now, whether they acknowledge that or not, that's not the point. The word of God comes with convicting power. The word of, of Christ comes with quickening power. Jesus, by his word, raised the dead. He healed uh, the lepers and the lame. His word had a controlling power. He expelled de demons. He calmed the wind and the waves by the words of his mouth. So the Bible, the Word of God, carries with it its own testimony as to its divinity and its authority. Now you might be saying, well, that all sounds well and good, and you've given some biblical passages, but the fact remains, doesn't it, that most people seem to be unaffected by the Word. Most people don't respond in the way you've just described from these examples. People that deny the authority of the Bible, they'll scoff. They'll mock you, perhaps, when you when you claim to follow the Scripture as your supreme rule for faith and life. That authority is denied. And people seem to be unmoved, unaffected. They seem to recognize no dignity, no majesty in the Word of God. And how do we account for that? Well, there are different answers that we might give to that. For one thing, we realize that people may be far more affected by the word of God, then they would admit, and perhaps even admit to themselves. And a lot of people who may scoff at your testimony may lie in bed at night and suffer from a kind of anxiety and fear about death. And sometimes people who dismiss the word of God, who mock it when they face a crisis, when they face, face imminent death or danger or disaster, they'll call upon God. Because they have this conviction of the reality of God's majesty and of his word. And if they've heard the scriptures, that also increases the objective basis for that conviction of sin and judgment. So that's one explanation. We need to believe in the power and authority of God's word and not judge its effectiveness by the response that people give at the time that they hear of it. It's also true that a hardening takes place in the lives of people. If they resist the word, they may be judged by God with a kind of hardening that makes them increasingly insensitive to its authority. 
That happened with Pharaoh, right? He hardened his heart. God hardened him as he rejected the word of God. It's a kind of judgment for those who despise the revelation of God. And we recognize that God is sovereign. God is sovereign uh, to break through the dullness of our of our minds and hearts, our natural spiritual deadness to the authority of his word, to prick our consciences. God is sovereign to break through despite the willful deafness that people have to his voice. But that doesn't change the fact that the word of God carries with it its own authority and its majesty. It's objectively clear and powerful, though it is unrecognized, though it is suppressed, though it is denied. You know, we saw that, didn't we, with respect to God's revelation of his divinity and power in creation, so that all people, whether they've had the word of God or not, are left without excuse because the reality of God's divinity and power are clearly evident in the things that are made. Does that mean that people always acknowledge, oh yes, this revelation of God and his divinity is inescapable. Of course, I will bow to him and seek him and be thankful to him. No, no. They suppress that revelation. That's what we do by nature with the revelation of God in creation. That's what people do by nature with the revelation of God in Scripture. But that doesn't change the character of that revelation. It just shows how hopelessly lost we are by nature in sin, that we reject the revelation of God. And when people reject the Word of God, it is not for lack of evidence. They might tell themselves they need more. That's what the rich man thought, right? You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This rich man who fared sumptuously every day, he feasted himself while this poor beggar was at his gate without uh, anything to eat. And Lazarus died and was carried into God's presence by the angels. And after a time, the rich man also died. And he lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. And he pleaded for a drop of water to quench his thirst. And then he pleaded that Abraham would send Lazarus uh, to his brothers to warn them against this horrible place that he had come to. And you remember the response? They have Moses and the prophets. If they will not hear them, neither will they hear if one is risen from the dead. Isn't that a tremendous testimony to the authority of God's word? as sufficient as to leave people without excuse who have never seen the kind of miracle that they might demand of God, the kind of personal revelation that they tell themselves would be enough to bring them to bow before God? No, God's word is absolutely authoritative. And the problem is with us because the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. God's word carries its own authority. And it's the natural, depraved blindness and spiritual deadness of people that refuse to recognize it and bow to it. So the scriptures are self-attesting. And then secondly, and here we move uh, to our confession concerning how is it then that we have come to accept uh, the Bible as the word of God? And the answer to that question is that the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God. The Bible is certainly true, 
according to its own evidence, but it is savingly known to be true by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And here again, we remember that this is a confession of faith. It's not simply a theological document that uh, um, explains Christian doctrine, but it does so in the way of confession. It does so as from the mouth of believers who receive the revelation of God. So this is a confession of true believers who have experienced the wonderful majesty and the authority of the Bible through the witness of the Holy Spirit. And we must not think of this witness as if it was a form of, of kind of uh, immediate revelation, as if along with reading the Bible or along with hearing a sermon, suddenly another voice joins in as if whispering in our ear, you are hearing the word of God. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. No, no, no. That's not how God works. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds. He moves our hearts so we begin to pay attention. So that the preacher is not just pouring out a bunch of God words and theology and Bible explanation. But we're gripped by the truth. I once heard a preacher describe unction, the work of the Holy Spirit in preaching. And he says, it's as if somehow from the time that the words leave the mouth of the minister and reach the ears of those who hear, it's as if God sat upon those words. And they come with authority. The Holy Spirit seals the truth and authority of the word upon our hearts. Now that, that may not come uh, in the way of a sudden, immediate, life-changing experience. It may come as the dew upon the grass. It may come by that still, small voice. It may come from those early years of childhood as the reality of the truth of God's Word begins to saturate more and more the minds and the, think the thinking and the feelings of our little ones. And as they pass through different experiences of life, they see increasingly the importance and the truth of Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the one in whom they must trust. So again, you know, describing this testimony of the Spirit in terms of these dramatic ways, we're talking about the effect. We're not suggesting that the experience of that is the same in every instance. But whenever anyone comes to know that the Bible is this special holy book that is true, and we begin to uh, take an interest, we have an appetite for its teaching. Sermons begin to uh, uh, hold our attention and intrigue us. And we find their effectiveness to help us and to comfort us, to deepen our faith. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And a big part of that work is testifying to the truth of the word that is proclaimed. So it's not as if the believer sees or hears, we must say, something different in the Bible, but rather he sees or or hears with, with new eyes. He has eyes to see and ears to hear, to use the language of Jesus, or to use the language of, of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. Paul says, Beloved, knowing, beloved, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, 
or in the next chapter. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing, right? The effect of the word is, is owing to God entirely. Because when you receive the word which you heard from us, yes, it was communicated uh, by, uh, by the mouths of these earthen vessels, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So God himself then gives us this assurance uh, personally. So we may know experientially that the Bible is God's holy word. And you see, that is, that is different than, than simply putting our confidence in the witness and the testimony of the church. Now that does not mean that the witness and the testimony of the church is not important. That it's not, uh, joined with the word in terms of what God uses us. Uh, to to bring us to faith and to nurture us in the faith. God doesn't deal with us in as isolated individuals. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but often that that word is not only proclaimed from pulpits, but it's read at kitchen tables. It's taught through Bible story books. It's learned in the Christian school in a whole variety of ways. And it's exhibited in the life and the testimony and the confession of God's people. And all these things serve to accomplish God's purpose of nurturing His people, saving them. So we don't want to dismiss the role of the church here. But that role is to confess the Word of God and to adhere to it, to follow it, to teach it. And the authority then of the Bible is not grounded in the church's judgment that it is the word of God. The church's confession that it is the word of God, the church's experience and testimony that it is the word of God is very important. But the foundation of our faith in the scripture ultimately is not in some decision of the church that was made some, uh, some time in history. You know, so that's what a lot of people will say. Well, you believe the Bible is the word of God because back in the early centuries, there was this great big meeting of Christians. And they sat down and said, hmm, now we have all these books. And we need to kind of decide what we're going to use as our authority. And so they kind of evaluated these books and they, they took a vote and said, well, let's include this book and maybe this one here. Yeah, that's what, that's what we, that will be our Bible. Well, that's the way a lot of people think that the Bible came into the possession of the church. That the church decided, the church judged what is the word of God. Now, there were councils, and there were historical uh, persons that listed books of Scripture and bore testimony to their reception and recognition as the Word of God. That doesn't mean they made it the Word of God by their decision. The Bible is the foundation for the church. The church is not the foundation for the Bible. That's the Roman Catholic view, really, that it's the church that not simply receives and accepts, but in a sense establishes and determines the word of God. And that's very closely related to the fact that in the history of Roman Catholicism, the authority by which Roman Catholics live and by what they believe is not sola scriptura. That was recovered at the Reformation. But it was the scriptures as interpreted by the church according to its 
counsels, according to its pronouncements, according to its traditions. And the result of that was tradition, in effect, is elevated above the Scripture. Rather than the church being under the Word of God, the church was viewed as having the right and responsibility to, in a sense, judge the Word of God. You know, that, that really explains the inclusion of the Apocrypha, these non-inspired books in the Bible recognized by Roman Catholics. It's not based on inspiration. It's based on their judgment to include them in the Bible. We'll consider that next time. Now, this, this distinction seems to be a little bit slippery, not maybe so easy to grasp, but it's an important distinction. The church doesn't determine what the scriptures are. The church receives the scripture. The word of God was received by the churches as they received it. When the churches received letters from the Apostle Paul, those letters carried with them their own testimony as to their authority from God. So they were received. You see, if uh, if the church selects its own foundation, then the next question is, by what criteria? By whose judgment? By human reason? Human opinion? Majority vote? It's unthinkable that the word of God would be subjected to that kind of thing. When God spoke to Abram, Abram, did Abram say, now just wait a minute, I hear a voice, but I need to think a little while to see whether this is really the word of God or not. Give me some time. Of course not. The word of God that came to the prophets, the word of God carried with it its own majesty and authority. So the church does not determine the word of God, but the church confesses the word of God and its authority. That's the language of our confession, right? We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical. It recognizes Scripture and accepts and confesses. And that's the proper role and response of faith. That's a great testimony, and it's a God-given testimony. The fact that our confession doesn't determine the authority of God's Word doesn't mean that this confession isn't important, as I've said. And yes, indeed, God has guided his church into this confession. And we have a responsibility to keep it clear and strong and to pass it on. The nurture of the church, faithfully proclaiming the infallible word, is the context in which he does his work of testimony in our own hearts. And that testimony is not simply a matter of adherence to orthodoxy, is it? It is that, but it's not simply a, a maintenance of correct doctrine. No, the Bible has authority to do what? For the regulating and the founding and the establishment of our faith. We receive these books for those practical purposes. And a Christian confession of the authority of Scripture is always a kind of experiential confession where we revere the Scriptures. We have a reverence for the Bible as the Word of God. Isaiah 66 describes that reverence where it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. We sang, we read Psalm uh, 29, which is an arousing, powerful psalm, as it declares the power of the voice of the Lord. And in the context there, if you pay attention, uh, 
It's talking about the voice of God in thunder and lightning with all these tremendous effects. And indeed, a manifestation of God's power that carries with it its its own authority. I remember the story, I probably shared it with, I know I shared it with my catechism classes. My first summer assignment in Sutton, Nebraska, uh, the pastor there, uh, Reverend Peter Grossman, he was a brother of the professor at seminary, and I served for a summer under him, but he was telling me about how little children are so quickly receptive to the teaching of God's word. And he said that he was, he was holding his granddaughter after the church, after the church service and, uh, in the foyer. And just then a, 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 a storm was approaching and there was a loud clap of thunder and lightning. And this little girl of one uh, and a half or two years old says, God, now we pray. <laughs> it was an instinctive re- response. This is God. And, and now we must pray reverence. But this arousing psalm concerning the power of God's voice with lightning to scare animals into giving birth and to light uh, light up trees on fire and all those kinds of things is a helpful way also to appreciate the authority of God's voice in his holy word with these tremendous spiritual effects that he accomplishes, the tremendous things that God does by his word. It's by his word and spirit that he gives strength to his people and blesses his people with peace. As we receive these books for our, the, the foundation of our faith, we learn to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we come to see the very focal point of this divine revelation in the face of Jesus Christ. Because the scriptures are supremely about him. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said to the Jews who were actually rejecting him, rejecting the living word, who spoke the words of God. In John chapter chapter 5, Jesus said, You do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Make so abundantly clear that the Bible is about Jesus. And to receive the Bible with understanding is to be brought uh, to the feet of the Son of God as the Savior and Lord and to believe in him. And there's no kind of acceptance of Scripture as the Word of God that falls short of that response of faith in the one and only Savior. The Bible leads us to Christ. The Bible keeps us with Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amen.